You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today we are beginning a teaching series that will last us the rest of the summer, well, almost, because technically the summer ends September 21st. This won't end before that. Um, And we do this practically every year. It's called VBS for Heretics. Anybody, does everybody know what VBS means? Vacation Bible, okay, that's good, that's good, that's right. Vacation Bible School. How many of you went to Vacation Bible School growing up? Don't be shy, don't be afraid. Okay, so, Half of you? All right, well. Um, in some ways, it was a terrible thing <laughs> to do to kids, was it not? You know, you're off from school, and the last thing you want to do is go to school, and, and certainly not go to Bible school <laughs> at church, but that's what happened, right? And let's be honest, the reason why so many churches still do VBS then and now, um, it's like free daycare. You know, it's, lit, it's right for like five afternoons in the middle of the summer. Parents can send their kids for free down to the local church. And the churches want to do it because it's this, I don't know if it's very effective, but it is kind of like a marketing scheme for the church. The idea that a lot of churches have, I should know because I worked for a church uh, for a couple of years in Nashville, Tennessee, that was big about their VBS program. The thinking was, that, you know, we'll get all these neighborhood kids into the church and then we'll get them saved or whatever, and then they'll go home and tell their parents about what an incredible experience they had, and then the parents will come to church and uh, will grow the church that way. It was a big marketing ploy, I guess, in some ways. Uh, again, I'm not sure how effective it is, but, uh, or was, but that, that was the thinking. Um, and I, found, I found this article entitled, How VBS Drove Millennials Away from the Church. Uh, I'm not sure that VBS was, is the entire reason why, uh, but I'm sure many of us heard disturbing things in vacation Bible school about, you know, needing to be saved from hellfire or, you know, the Noah's Ark story. That was a popular one to hear in VBS, which is not a children's story. If you're familiar, we'll, we'll get to that story in this series, actually. We've never, I don't think I've ever spoken on Noah's Ark before, but it's worth looking at. Um, Anybody remember singing the song Rise and Shine? Yeah. Oh, you like... I'm um, sorry, I'm going to criticize it, Marsha. <laughs> it's kind of a screwed up song, right? The, be- the beginning of it, or at least one of the lyrics is, the Lord told Noah there's going to be a floody flood. Which is, uh, I-, I love the adding of the word why to flood. It makes global genocide and the drowning of countless people sound so much cuter. Um, is it any one? Is it any wonder many of us in our generation left the church? Well, that's why we're doing VBS for heretics, and just like any other VBS program, we need a theme. VBS programs all have themes, right? And so our theme is going to be mythology, namely the role that mythology plays in the Bible. And by mythology, I don't mean false or untrue stories that we can ignore and dismiss because of their fictitious nature. Rather, I mean quite the opposite. A myth in the deepest sense of the term is a story that defines reality for a community, a symbolic story that reveals in its symbolic and metaphorical structure 
deeper truths about the way a people, a community sees the world, sees themselves and sees their God and their relationship to their God or gods. But so myths can be secular too, to be quite clear. I want us to understand that myths can be secular too. Atheism can be a myth that defines reality and identity for someone. Consider what we're told by our culture and what it means to be black or white or gay or straight, male or female, liberal or conservative, upper, middle, or lower class. All these ideas are basically secular myths, what we might call meta-narratives. Meta meaning you know, overarching, narrative meaning story. These are these are stories that we believe in about what it means to be us and what it means to partake in society and the world. These stories define reality. These stories define identity in unconscious ways. We're not even conscious, I think, of these stories and how they influence the world around us, everything. And so these, these ideas, even these ideas are basically secular myths, secular stories that define reality and identity. So myths are everywhere. It's one of the first things I want to just say. Myths are everywhere. And again, by myth, I don't mean fairy tale, false, true story. I mean just a story that defines identity and reality. So with that being said, the theme and title for our VBS series this summer is, of course, VBS for Heretics, colon, True Myths. And we're going to look at six myths in the Bible, the story of creation, from Genesis 1 and 2, and then uh, two weeks from now, because I'm not here next Sunday, um, we'll look at the story of the so-called fall of man from Genesis 3, and then we'll look at the story of Noah and the ark, and then we'll look at the Exodus story, and then we're going to look at Jesus's miracles, and particularly in the Gospel of Mark. And finally, the, the last week, we're going to look at the book of Revelation. And we begin today with the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. Notice I said stories, plural. Many people don't know that there's actually two accounts of creation, two different creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2, with some similarities and some differences. As far as the similarities go, both creation counts have God creating the world, of course, and creating just two human beings to get started, a male and a female placing them in the center of creation and giving them a mandate to cultivate, to create, to innovate, to take care of the earth. The similarities between those two stories kind of end there <laughs> and the differences uh, abound. The Genesis 1 version has the sequence of creation going plants, animals, then humans, Whereas the Genesis chapter two version has the sequence going humans, then plants, then animals. Another difference is the name of God used in each account. In Genesis one, the Hebrew word for God being used is Elohim, which is actually plural. It can mean gods, not just God, which may be why we find the text saying in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we find God saying, let us make mankind in our image. 
it's not clear who he's speaking to. Many scholars think, well, this was meant to infer that he's, he's not speaking to other deities, but he's speaking to the heavenly host, the angels, etc. Um, in Genesis 2, however, the name of God used is the, the personal name of the Hebrew tribal deity, Yahweh, which is singular. So you got these two different names for God, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2. And this has led scholars to believe, for other reasons too, that these two different creation accounts were written at different times and then merged in, these, in Genesis later on by later editors, probably after the Babylonian exile circa 5th, 6th century BCE. There are other differences between the accounts. Genesis 1 is a lot more structured than Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, you have creation taking place on six days, over the course of six days. And in Genesis 2, it all happens over an indeterminate amount of time. Genesis 1 is also structured into prose, like, like a song or like poetry, with repeated refrains, like, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning on the first day, evening and morning on the second day, evening and morning on the third day, and so on and so forth, which again reinforces the narrative's poetic structure. We're not reading a science textbook here. It's poetry. It's mythology. So those are the main differences between the two creation accounts. However, there are, there are some important similarities, which we went over uh, a minute ago. Now, to really understand the purpose and meaning of the Genesis creation accounts, in my opinion, one must understand their similarities to other earlier creation myths from the ancient Near East, namely those myths coming out of the Akkadian, the Babylonian, and the Sumerian um, civilizations. These myths had names. The, uh, the Enuma Elish, the legend of Enki and Ninhursag, and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Maybe you, if you're a Bible nerd, you've heard of some of these before. Again, these were Sumerian, Babylonian, and Akkadian myths that all predate Genesis. Okay? They predate Genesis. Genesis was probably written between 700 and 800 BCE. But these other myths came to exist 500 years perhaps even a thousand years before that. So we know that the authors of Genesis borrowed stuff from these other myths to write their own. And there's many examples of this. In both the Enuma Elish and Genesis, we find that chaos was the status quo at the beginning of creation. Before we're told God acted, there was chaos and that a, a vast sea a vast ocean pre-existed everything else. And in the ancient world, the ocean or the sea was symbolic of chaos, okay? In, in both myths, in both the Enuma Elish and Genesis, the creation sequence goes first light, then sky, then land, then the sun, moon, and stars, then humanity is made. Other myths like the Sumerian myth called Enki and Ninhursag also have striking similarities to Genesis. Both accounts describe a utopian land, an idyllic place where carnivores lived at peace with prey animals. There was no predation, there was no disease, there was no sickness or death. It's also important to note that the serpent that we find in Genesis chapter three, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, that serpent is found also in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it was the serpent that kept 
Gilgamesh from obtaining immortality. The serpent in the Epic of Gilgamesh kept Gilgamesh from getting a hold of this, um, this immortality granting plant. I think it was like a reed. And in Genesis 3, we find the serpent right in the tree of the, the forbidden fruit. And in a way, the serpent there thwarts humanity's capability of, of eating from the tree of life and thereby living forever. In both accounts, the serpent plays this role of stymieing humanity's attempt at gaining godhood, immortality. Okay, striking similarity. Another common feature between Genesis and these other myths is their cosmology. All these myths had the same cosmology. What does that mean? The ancients understood the, the cosmos, the world that we live in, as like an upside-down bowl. Picture an upside-down bowl. Flat bottom, dome top. The dome was the sky. And this, is, this makes sense, right? If you are standing on a hilltop, or if you're out at, on a vast body of water and can see the horizon, it looks like we're living under a dome, right? And so the ancients, and this is reflected in Genesis. Um, the word dome is used in Genesis. The idea was that God separated or the gods separated the waters above the dome from the waters below the dome. And the waters above the dome is where the rain comes from. And the thinking was that the stars and the moon and the sun are all fixed on the surface of this dome and it passes over us. They're not, you know, billions of light years away in different distances. No, it's all affixed to this to this dome, to this surface. And above that surface was, of course, the, this, this vast ocean. But above that were, of course, the realm of the deities, the gods, where they resided. Okay. This was ancient cosmology. Uh, and we find it not just in those myths, but also in Genesis. So those are some of the similarities between Genesis and the other ancient Near Eastern myths of the period. But there are some important differences, too. Okay, and we'll get into those in a minute. But first, I want to say a word about why Genesis borrowed from these myths, why the authors of Genesis, these Hebrew Israelite authors borrowed from these myths. Mimicry. Mimicry was a common literary practice back then. Everybody was borrowing stuff, riffing on other people's myths and tales and stories. Today, we would call it plagiarism. <laughs> Uh, they didn't see it that way back then. Mimicking each other's stories was done in order to legitimize your own story and or critique and subvert the stories of others. The thinking was, if our culture's stories sound like the well-established and famous stories of others, then our stories will be taken seriously too. Many scholars agree that the ancient Hebrews mimicked the creation myths of their neighbors in order to both legitimize their myths and to critique the myths of their neighbors and subvert them. It's as if the authors of Genesis are saying, Yahweh is greater than Marduk, Enki, Ninhersag, Ea, Tiamat, these other deities of the ancient world, of the ancient Mesopotamian world. Yahweh is greater than them, was kind of the point. Yahweh and Elohim's story is similar to theirs, but better. Right? And therefore, our God is greater than your God. Our nation is greater than your nation. That's the implied meaning here in this mimicry. And here we see both a theological and political agenda to this mimicry. 
And this is the real point of the Genesis myth and how it functioned for the original audience. The question becomes, what does this mean for us today? Well, it can mean various things. Interestingly, the Genesis creation account still carries a lot of political and theological power today. Recent research shows that 40% of Americans, almost half, read Genesis literally. And that comes with some profound social and political implications. Members of my own family, my sister, my mother, still read Genesis 1 and 2 as completely literal. They actually have season tickets to the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Are you familiar with this? The Ark Encounter, right? It's a museum that you walk through that basically deconstructs, what portends to deconstruct evolution and show how all those scientists are just wrong and hiding the truth about carbon dating and you know the fact that the earth is really only 6,000 years old, right? All these scientists, countless scientists are hiding the geologic truth. They're ignoring it, downplaying it. We know the truth, right? This, is, this has enormous, not just theological import, but political and social implications as well, right? In a way, for many evangelicals, you know, science and secularism, the, the point of, of the Genesis account teaches them that science and secularism do not reign supreme. The God of evolution and modernity is a false God, and our God, the God of conservative Christianity, is real and true, and he will vanquish all the false gods of secularism and modernity and science. You see that? So this myth still carries a lot of political and theological power today, just like it did back in the Bronze, just like back in the Bronze Age, or the late or the Iron Age, which is astonishing when you think about it. And this reveals the enormous power of myths and stories in general to create systems of meaning that can last for literally thousands of years and transcend culture, time, and place. Now, the Genesis creation myths were also significantly different than the accounts of their neighbors, as I've mentioned, or maybe I haven't mentioned this yet. Perhaps the biggest difference was that the Genesis accounts are based on monotheism. That's a fancy word, meaning it's about one God. In other words, the idea of there being one God instead of many, which is polytheism, which are these other creation myths coming out of Sumeria, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, that was more polytheistic. Now, there's a hint of polytheism, I think, in the Genesis 1 account, which we've already touched on. There's the name of God, Elohim, which can be plural, and God says, let us make mankind in our image. We don't know exactly who he's talking to. However, it's clear. It's, it's, it's clear, I think, that, especially in the Genesis 2 account, that God is a single actor in this act of creation. There's one God, right? This was a deeply held view of the ancient Israelites. God is one. Um, so monotheism is definitely a feature of the Hebrew myth, a unique feature of the Hebrew myth in comparison with the others of that period. Another important difference between Genesis and the other myths is that in Genesis, God creates the world out of this sense of benevolence and love and a desire to share the world with us, um, to make us, in a sense, partners with him in creation and cultivating and building something. 
this theme of benevolence and love in Genesis is really different than what we find in these other creation myths, where we find the, the gods creating the world and humanity as a result of divine combat in the cosmos. Uh, the gods are at war with each other and killing each other, and somehow the world is created out of that. Or we find the gods making us because they wanted slaves and they wanted worshipers. That's another version. The God of Genesis, however, is really different in this regard because he seems to create from a place of love and, and wants humanity to partner with him in creating the world and cultivating it. And I think this difference was meant by the author or the authors of Genesis as a critique of Israel's neighbors and their deities. I think part of the original purpose of Genesis was to communicate and embody Israel's hope for a better world, a world where they are one with the creator and partner with the creator in the act of creating and cultivating, making the world a wonderful place. I think Genesis reflects that hope. It, it reflects an ancient people's hope in a world where peace and tranquility might reign supreme. And it's a story about how we were formed, yes, we were formed out of the dust of the earth, like everything else. And yet we were also, we're told, made in the image of God. And God breathes God's spirit into us and gives us life. What does this mean in the original context? Well, I don't really know for sure, but I think, if I may be so bold, I think this reflects a very high view of humanity and this idea of our connection, not just to the world and each other, but to God, God's self. We are divine dust, you could say, is the underlying meaning of us being formed out of the dirt, made in the image of God and God breathing his spirit, her spirit, their spirit into us. In a way that the, the message is we are earthlings, yes, but we are also divine beings, We're not just earthlings. We are divine. And, and perhaps the Genesis creation account collapses those two distinctions the dirt and the divine, <laughs> earthling and divine being. Everything we're told came from God. Everything shall return to God, the one, the one. We creatures of dust, we are creatures of dust who know that we are made in the image, the image of God and we are full of the breath of God, and we know that we are always and forever connected to the one, to God. Perhaps that's part of the underlying meaning here, the underlying message. We could never not be connected to the source, the one, to the divine. We were taken, as, as Eve, we're told, was taken out of Adam's rib, we were taken out of God's side, his breath. We are connected, and we could never not be connected. We are dirt, but we are also divine. And there's, a, again, a collapsing of that distinction. The dirt is divine, and the divine is dirt. We're not two things are one thing. Everything came from the one. Everything is forever connected to the one and shall return therein. That, for me, is part of the underlying message here. At least that's how I like to read it. 
But it's, a, it's an idea that we struggle to hang on to. It's an idea that we, we have trouble believing in sometimes, which is what I think Genesis chapter 3 is all about, with the eating of the forbidden fruit and Adam and Eve realizing their nakedness, their lack, their mortality, which we'll get into in a few weeks, a couple weeks. But suffice to say for now, this is the story of Genesis 1 and 2. And it's a very different reading than one I've given you, than the one we grew up with, I think. I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing that because Genesis 1 and 2 says that we were given dominion over the earth and told to subdue it, we can kind of do whatever we want with creation. We can exploit it. We can ignore environmental and ecological concerns. We can ignore animal rights. It's all just there for us to use as we want. That was kind of the underlying message often I heard about Genesis. We were given dominion, power, and therefore we can do whatever the hell we want. Well, no, that's not really the message, I think. But again, here we see how the Genesis creation myths influence not just people's theology, but their politics and their social views, how they live in the world, and deal with issues like ecology and environmentalism, animal rights, ethics, these kinds of issues. So I prefer now to read the Genesis story the way a lot of indigenous people understand their creation myths, like the Navajo Nation, which is a good example here in the desert Southwest. Their creation myths put humanity into a harmonious relationship with nature and emphasize how we are inextricably connected to the earth, to the animals, to the, to the waters, to the sky, to each other. And therefore, the meaning is that we must respect and live in balance as much as we can in harmony with the rest of creation and the natural world because we are part of it and it is part of us. And it's for this reason the Navajos and other Native American tribes are deeply concerned about environmental issues. And I would, I would venture to say that a lot of Native Americans today who keep those stories and you know, tell those stories to their children do so from a place of where on one hand, they realize that these are myths, right? But on the other hand, they're true myths because they're the underlying message. It's not literal in a kind of scientific way, but it's literal in a kind of ethical, spiritual, symbolic way about how we are to really be human, live with each other and live in the world. That's the power of these myths. And that's why I, I love these, our myths. Myths are powerful things. The stories that define our identity, reality, and our beliefs are powerful things. And so with that in mind this morning, let's partake in the Lord's Supper now. And the story of the Lord's Supper, I'd say the myth of the Lord's Supper, if you will, goes like this. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and after breaking it, he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. He said, take, drink. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. And here at Central, this table is open to all who wish to partake, regardless of faith or tradition. It is gluten-free. It is alcohol-free. And you just take one of those crackers and you dip it in the cup. You receive it. 
and then you serve the person next to you because we believe that's symbolic of what it means for us to be Christ for each other. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So every week here at Central, we have a discussion period. We call it sometimes a Q&A, but it's more like a discussion. Um, where we invite comments, questions, complaints, remarks, anything goes. Um, anybody have anything they want to ask? Yeah, Marsha. Why do myths have so much power? Yeah, I touched on it, but it's a great question. Um, because myths often come from institutions structures in our world, be it like a religious institution or our families, right? There's a story about what it means to be, you know, part of your family, right? Perhaps um, there's, there's, you know, stories that come to us again about what it means to be white or what it means to be black, or what it means to be gay or straight and American, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these stories that we are unconscious of, I think, in so many ways that were handed to us by society. You know, the story of, you know, when you turn 18, you're supposed to go to college, you know, get your, get your bachelor's degree, graduate, get a job, move out, become independent, you know, uh, raise a family, you know, this, that's, that's a very American myth, right? And it's kind of like the American dream, right? The idea of, you know, we all know that that myth is dead. Um, well, I think it's dead, but myths are powerful because they come to us from these authoritative structures in our life be it an institution like a church or a family or the culture. Does that make sense? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. But we can choose what myths we want to subscribe to and believe in, which we don't. You know, that's the other thing. Myths, you know. And, and again, I, I want to show today that myths aren't just religious, um, religious ideas. They don't just come to us from theology or religion. You know, they are, they permeate our lives. Um, these stories about what it means to be us, what's real, what's not. You know, again, in a sense, atheism and reductive materialism is itself a story, a myth that defines reality and identity for people. This idea there is no transcend, there's no, there's no God, there's nothing transcendent, there's there's nothing but just stuff, material stuff, and we are here by sheer randomness. That's it. That's the story. And that influences the way you might live in the world, the value you put on things. And again, that, I'm just showing how even atheism and reductive materialism can be a kind of mythology that defines reality and identity. Other thoughts, questions, remarks about Genesis um, too, you know, Genesis one and two. Do you remember when you changed how you read Genesis? Do you remember what that process was? If, if there was a process, there was for me. I remember a moment in college when I'm curious about how maybe that story played a role in your deconstruction or how you changed. Yeah, Leanne. 
Yeah, I think, um, honestly, Joseph Campbell was such um, a doorway for me, um, reading his works on mythology and comparative mythology and folklore. Um, it was interesting. It kind of felt for me like really odd to come to the under other side of it because you're kind of taught that it is, this is like truth, this is history. Um, I remember someone once bought me a copy of like the story where it's like the Bible, but like in prose form where it's like told, like you're reading a kind of like a history book and they have like timelines and you're like, oh, this all really happened. It was funny coming out the other side of it um, and seeing the broader cultural context of like the Epic of Gilgamesh and Sumerian mythology. And you're like, oh, like this is a product of its time that's commenting and participating in this discussion of the creation of the world. Um, it's funny to come out the other side. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> okay. You kind of, eh, it was it was a bit jarring. And then you're like, oh, well, this is actually, you know, I can relax a little more when I read Genesis as opposed to thinking it has to be true historically. Yeah, good stuff. Anybody else? Yeah, um, Kimberly, right? I got your email a little late. I was going to respond, but hello, welcome. Hi. Um, <laughs> I was like, how do you know my name? Um, okay, so yeah, this is my first time here. Um, I just came out of a very uh, godly church that I didn't really uh, fit in at, actually. And I got out of a relationship with somebody who was very like, there's only one God and just very critical of who I was so it was very interesting to hear this kind of like deconstruction and the thing you said about Genesis not having to be literal when I was reading the Bible for the first time not too long ago like a month ago with my ex-partner we kind of got into this debate because I was like if this is literal this is kind of insane like this is out like this is outlandish um, so just this kind of being in a room with this acceptive idea of like, hey, maybe it doesn't have to be literal is just, it was very, um, I don't know, it was really interesting. And I just wanted to say that that's really dope. And thank you for letting me talk. Very cool. No, thank you for sharing your experience and uh, your feelings about that and a bit of your story too. And, and welcome to this, uh, to this community. Yeah, good stuff. Anybody else want to share their experience with Genesis mythology and changing all that view, all those views, maybe? I remember when I was an undergraduate uh, in the Bible department at Lipscomb, this is now 20 years ago, I distinctly remember the professor, one of, one of my Bible professors saying, just asking the question, who told us to read Genesis literally? And I was just like, and it was like that that question, you know, the power of that question. Immediately I thought, well, he apparently doesn't. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, I'm getting over something I got 10 days ago. It's not COVID, I test. Um, but um, I remember that question being like, oh my gosh. And my fellow classmates, some of them, it, it just was like, yeah. But for me, it was like, wow, that set me on this course, probably well, one of the things at that time. So it's just that one question, who told us, who told us to read this literally? But the answer is 
fundamentalism, fundamentalism of the last 200 years, pretty much, because Augustine in the, oh gosh, third or fourth century, we have his writings. He didn't read it literally. He didn't read it literally. He, he went as far to say that, you know, science shows that this, he, he suspected that this was not literal. Let's put it like that. So it's a, he was probably hedging his bets, and, but he was, he didn't read it literally. Anyway, interesting stuff. Max, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I'll give it right back to you. It strikes me how similar that question is to the question you always like to, to engage in Genesis of who told you you were naked? Because it's like the same thing, right? It's like, who told you that? And it really does. It helps, it helps break the whole grip of it of like oh this is an innate self-evident self-evidential truth and then you're like wait no it's not i literally only believe that because this framework was given to me and then suddenly when you have new eyes to see it becomes like the framework falls apart so i just since it was genesis it was just... totally, yeah, that's, a, that's a good point that's a great question from genesis 3 which by the way i love the story in genesis 3 and i've written a bunch on it but yeah jason i think i'm gonna say who told you yeah and i'm excited in a couple of weeks to talk about the forbidden fruit and what it is and what it means i have a lot of thoughts no no uh i grew up really I guess, fundamentalist um, and in like the sort of culty creationist place. And we used to go to, I don't remember if it was Ken Ham or somebody else, but I've been to like these conferences, creationist conferences where they tell you like uh, pseudoscientific reasons why it never rained in the Garden of Eden, you know, or that the earth is only 6,000 years old or that dinosaurs and humans were running around together. Lots of stuff, right? Like all kinds of, I could go on and on, like finding uh, chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea, all these, like if you're in that culture, there's tons of it, right? And uh, I think I mentioned this before, but I do remember sitting in one of those and actually having the thought and it uh, terrified me I might've been like 11 or 12 or something, 10, um, that holy shit, what if the world really is only 6,000 years old and there's like all of the history that we know is all the history that there is. And it started at a certain point and, um, you know, there's not that much of it. Uh, I don't know exactly why it it hit me and it didn't last, but it really did like scare me to death because I think it meant if that stuff is all true, then the stuff about Christ coming back tomorrow, you know, um, uh, the apocalypse, all these other like stories that I heard growing up were also probably true um like adam and eve was not that long ago god walked around on the earth not that long ago um and yeah it was really scary and i think in terms of like power of myths or power of ways of thinking or whatever i think if i had believed it and adopted it and that became my worldview my life would be completely different 
the way that I re like react to everything. Like I really would believe that like the earth is going to end pretty soon. So, you know, let's pray in a tent instead of uh, helping people kind of thing. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's definitely power to myths or stories if you believe them. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a bit like gaslighting to be told those stories and to believe them because it kind of erodes your ability to think critically on a whole host of issues that influence. I mean, it's, that's that's like emotional abuse. That's not like emotional. It is emotional abuse. Um, distorts reality for the rest of people's lives. It's religious trauma syndrome. We have a name for it now. You know. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point, Jason. Somebody else. Yeah, Marsha. I know you don't like the mic, so <laughs> you're you're good. Oh yeah, I'll take it back. Thanks. Thanks. You want to use the mic? All right, cool. You you do you. It it has struck me that the word jarring is real. And it occurred to me that unless something jars me, I won't go on a different thought process. So unless you're around people who don't always think like you or take classes, what's to jar you? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, if we live in kind of an insular um, community that doesn't allow new ideas to be introduced, uh, you're right. And that's exactly how that works often in the church to protect the ideology. Now, other thoughts? Okie doke. Well, welcome to VBS for Heretics. Uh, you already were a heretic before I, you got here, so I'm not turning you into one. Um, but uh, anyway, everybody, let's conclude our service, as we always do, with this joint benediction. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Go in peace, my friends.